You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there because they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the great spirit was given at the lay, I'm having trouble reading today. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, "Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." Peter answered, "May your money perish with you." Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part 
or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. If you remember back to the gospels, particularly the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the gospels record Jesus teaching on new wineskins. And talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus says that you don't sew a new patch of unshrunken cloth over a torn garment. Because if you do that, that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to pull away from the garment and it's going to make the tear worse. Likewise, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. If you do that, the old wineskins will burst and both the wineskin and the wine will be ruined. I think what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts is the truth of Jesus' teaching there. As the disciples seek to follow Jesus, they still consider themselves Jewish. They're going to the temple. They're going to synagogues. They're praying. They're studying the scriptures. They're doing what Jewish people would do. But they're new wine. When the Holy Spirit descended on them like tongues of fire, a new people were being brought forth. And this couldn't just be sewn onto the old garment. What we see in these opening chapters of Acts, particularly in Acts 4, 5, 6, 7, and even here in 8, is the, is the patch pulling away. The cloth is beginning to tear. The wineskin is bursting. And you can see it in each clash between the disciples and the religious authorities. And each time we see it, it escalates from just being with Peter and John, to being all of the disciples, to the killing of Stephen, to the scattering of not the apostles, but the disciples, right? So the 11 are still in Jerusalem, but the rest scatter. And Saul is going from house to house, arresting those who are following Jesus. It's becoming apparent that this new thing will not and cannot last in the old order of things. Now, after the stoning of Stephen, the church scatters. And like I just said, the apostles stay in Jerusalem. So the apostles, the 11 who were with Jesus, and then Matthias who replaced Judas, they stay in Jerusalem. We're not 100% sure why they stay. We're not sure if those who are persecuting the church were going after sort of the the, the organic part of the church where the growth was happening, the new converts trying to stifle the growth and leaving the the 12 untouched. We're not sure if that's what's happening, but we do know that they begin to scatter. And some of those who scatter are people who are prominent in the church. And at the beginning of chapter 6, there's a dispute that breaks out between uh, uh, how the uh, widows are being cared for, both the, the, the Hebrew widows and the Greek widows, and how they're being cared for. And the disciples essentially say, hey, we can't, we can't give all of our time to to making sure that people are getting like their physical needs met. we got to be focused on teaching and prayer. And so they elect seven people to come alongside of them and help in this new ministry. And one of those people is Philip. And what we're told here in chapter 8 is Philip is the one, one of the people who is scattered. 
Now, Philip makes his way out of Jerusalem and goes up to Samaria, and there he begins to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And while he's in Samaria, he comes into contact with a man named Simon. Simon was known as a magician, but, I mean, he was not a pen and teller type musician. You've got to think of someone who is doing the same kind of wonders, same kind of healings as the disciples themselves. And because of that, people flocked to Simon. He was known as Simon the Great or the Great Power. People saw him as someone who was connected to the supernatural, to the divine in a unique way. And he had years of a following in Samaria. But then Philip shows up on the scene and within a relatively short period of time, he's now got a following. People are coming out to hear Philip teach and preach about Jesus They're believing him because of what he's saying and because of what he is doing. Remember, Luke is often coupling word and deed throughout the book of Acts. And we see that in what Philip is doing. And because of that, people believe and are baptized. Now, Simon's shrewd, right? Simon understands that something unique is happening here. And we're not totally sure of his motivations, but I think we can at least say that game recognizes game. And Simon comes to Peter or or to Philip and and says, I want to know what's going on here. I want to see what is happening. But in the process, we're told that Simon himself believes and then is baptized. And from there, he begins to follow Philip everywhere. He's taking it all in. He's seeing what it is about. He's seeking to understand what he is witnessing. Now at this point of the story, we don't know anything about Simon's faith. We don't know anything about the nature of his belief and why he believed and all of those types of things. We simply know he believed and was baptized. This is the first half of the story of Acts chapter 8. Now we get into the second half of the story. After Philip goes to Samaria and begins to preach, and the Samaritans begin to respond to the preaching, Peter and John make their way to Samaria to see what is happening. And when they get there, they realize that those who have been baptized have only been baptized into the name of Jesus and have not received a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they lay hands on these new converts, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, when I was in college... I went to a more Pentecostal-leaning church. And many in the church pointed to this particular passage as reason for why people needed to have a unique or special baptism in the Holy Spirit, right? That it was some other separate experience that a person had to go through in order to, to have a unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives, I was suspect of that teaching when I was in college. I really just disregard it altogether right now. And and part of the reason, well, I don't say part of the reason. Here's the reason why. In this first half of Acts chapter 8 and verses 125, it's what we see happening. We see Peter and John coming to Samaria, recognizing that a baptism in the name of Jesus has happened, but not the baptism of the Spirit. They lay their hands on the Spirit descends. Yes, that happens. But if you were to keep reading, and what we'll look at next week in Acts chapter 8, is that Philip then is going to come across an an Ethiopian eunuch. He's going to preach to him about Jesus. The eunuch's going to look down and say, hey, there's a river. What should stop me from getting baptized? Philip's like, great point. Takes him down to the river, baptizes him. And at that moment, the eunuch is baptized both 
in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see that Peter is preaching and he's preaching to some Gentiles. And before they are baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on the Gentiles. And then they get baptized. All right? So in these in, in Acts chapter 8, we see two different times in which the Spirit comes down. And then in just a couple of chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, we see that the Spirit comes down in a third way. So we have the Spirit coming down before baptism, at baptism, and after baptism. So here's what I take from that. And, and I'm going to quote from the great theologian Bono. Spirit moves in mysterious ways. Right? We don't get to dispense the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not ours to control. Instead, the Spirit leads us. And so what we have in Acts is this unfolding of God's plan to take the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And as the gospel goes out and as the disciples seek to preach the gospel and be faithful witnesses to the gospel in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, the Spirit of God is leading them. And is showing them where God's redemptive work is taking place. And I think that's the key. When Peter and John show up in Samaria, they aren't there to give the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans as much as they are to witness what the Spirit of God is doing. Because what the Spirit of God is doing in Samaria needs to be seen by the church. And what is it that the Spirit of God is doing in Samaria that the church needs to witness? That the gospel goes out to the Samaritans. That, that's it. The church, the apostles, the disciples, those who are following Jesus need to be witnesses to the fact that the Holy Spirit is resting on the Samaritans and thus is sealing them as a people who God is welcoming. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to say like, that's, that the point is for the disciples to be witnesses to the fact that the gospel is going out to the Samaritans, but it was significant. And here's why. The relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was contentious at best. If you think of Israel, the nation, the geographical nation, as a kind of a long rectangle, vertical rectangle, You've got Galilee, which would be in the north, and then you've got Judea, which would be in the south. And then smacked in the middle is Samaria. And despite the fact that, that Samaria is in, within the geographical region of Israel, the Samaritans themselves were not Jews. They didn't consider themselves Jews, and the Jewish people didn't consider themselves Jews. Right? In particular, the Jewish people looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. At best, they were half-breeds. At worst, they were foreigners or invaders or aliens who did not belong in their country. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Now, they weren't considered Gentiles and they weren't considered pagans, but they were instead this 
ethnically strange people who, who on the one hand seemed to worship the same God, but at the same time had these different religious practices and beliefs related to the worship of the God. So for example, the Samaritans only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as Scripture. The prophets, the Psalms, 1st, 2nd Kings, Chronicles, all of that stuff, not Scripture. Not in their minds. They also did not believe that Jerusalem was the place for the sanctuary of God. Rather, they believed it was a mountain in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. And then, even their understanding of the Messiah and who the Messiah was and uh, and, and what the Messiah would do, even that was different. And so both... And and then on top of that, you have both groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, believing that they were the true people of God. And that the other group is the one who is polluted and distorting the faith. And so it's not hard to imagine that there would be an immense amount of an animosity between these groups. With that, imagine Philip's surprise. When he shows up in Samaria and begins preaching about the Jewish Messiah. And the Samaritans believe. Imagine Peter and John's and all the other disciples back in Jerusalem. Imagine their surprise when word gets to them that the Samaritans are believing in Jesus. The Samaritans. The ones who don't accept the prophets. How in the world are they accepting Jesus, the one who the prophets foretold about? The Samaritans who have this different idea about who the Messiah is, and and yet they're accepting our Messiah. That that can't be. Not Not them. How could they believe in our Messiah? How could they accept Jesus? Not only that, but Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, they were with Jesus for three years of his ministry. They were with Jesus when he was up in the Galilee region and probably right around this time set his face towards Jerusalem to go. And the events that would follow there would lead to the cross. And as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and began to make his way from the north, Galilee in the north to Judea in the south to Jerusalem, he passes through Samaria. And Luke, the same Luke who writes the book of Acts, records in his gospel that as Jesus travels through Samaria, the Samaritans do not welcome Jesus. And because the Samaritans do not welcome Jesus, James and John, the same John who's now going with Peter to Samaritans to hear and to see that these Samaritans really have accepted Jesus, James and John say to Jesus, hey, because they're not accepting you, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? 
This is the history that's all encompassed in this story. This is the animosity. And this is what the Spirit is seeking to overcome. And so the Spirit does not descend on the, on, on the Samaritans right away. Maybe. This is me conjecturing. Maybe the Spirit doesn't settle on the, on the Samaritans right away because the Spirit needs Peter and John to come, to arrive, to see what is happening. And then when they lay hands on the Samaritans and they see the, 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 the Spirit come down, the, the, the Spirit come down on those who were once to, resistant to Jesus, on those who were viewed as outsiders and half-breeds, on the ones who were, they were willing to call down fire from heaven as they witnessed the Holy Spirit coming on these people. They understand that Jesus is saying, yes, even these are mine. When you look out at the world, Who are the people that God could envelop into his family that would scandalize you? Who are the foreigners in your mind who do not belong? Who are the ones who you look at and in contempt, in the silence of your heart, view as they have it all wrong? Who are the ones who challenge your most deeply held beliefs, who minimize what you deem to be important, who assert themselves uh, as belonging more than you? Who are those people? Can you believe that the Spirit of God wants to settle even on them? More than that, what does it mean to accept those, those people, those who you view as outsiders or those who you silently treat with contempt or those who challenge you? In, what does it mean to begin to see them as possible baptized brothers and sisters? Recognizing, of course, that that doesn't mean that they're suddenly going to start thinking like you and believing like you and become easier to be around. But it does mean that now in Christ you belong to one another. And just as the Spirit goes out ahead of Peter and John, the Spirit goes out ahead of us and is bringing people into the community of God. And we can't control it. And we don't get to dispense and determine who is in and who is out. And if you try to, if you try to control it, if you try to dictate where it goes and where it does not go, then ultimately the Spirit of God is going to leave us behind and the rocks will begin to cry out. Better instead for you and I to be Peter and John who follow, who give witness to where the Spirit is moving. And to be open to the possibility of being scandalized and surprised by who the Spirit of God settles on. But it's also not just people, groups, that God is welcoming into the family that we might be uncomfortable with. Can we also be honest that it's individuals? That God invites into his family individuals who either make us uncomfortable or if we're just being honest, we don't like. Today we met Simon the Sorcerer or Simon the Great. If you read the story, 
He comes across as power hungry and greedy and a man who uses power to promote himself and make himself wealthy. He is a kind of con man whose sole focus is himself. At least that's, that's how Luke is portraying him. And so when he asks Peter if he can have the ability to give the Holy Spirit to others, Peter rebukes him. And not, and not just a little bit. It's not just a gentle rebuke. Peter goes all Old Testament prophet on him, right? It is, it is and the, the, uh, the NIV kind of waters it down a little bit, but other translations have this really unique phrase that uh, it's just, it's just, it's one that's hard to get your mind around, but you know it's not good. It's the gall of bitterness resides in you, Ooh, right? And what was Peter's, res- or Simon's response to the rebuke from Peter? Pray for me. And we don't know what happens after Simon says that. We don't know if Simon truly repented and accepted that God is not some power that he gets to wield in order to make himself feel important or to to get him what he wants in life. We don't know if Simon walks away like the sad young ruler who walked away from Jesus. All we know is that he heard Peter's rebuke and was moved enough by it to ask Peter to pray for him. Now, some will say that Simon was never truly converted. That there are hints in the text that despite it says that Simon believed and was baptized, there's other hints in the text that say that that Simon never truly converted. But I I don't really like that take. I like to leave a little ambiguity and openness in the text. I like the fact that we're not told what happens to Simon. We're simply, the story simply comes to a close with him asking for prayer. And the reason that I like that openness is because it leaves, the, it leaves open the possibility that even a forsaken soul who at their base is utterly craven and hypocritical, that even they can repent and be forgiven. And part of the reason that I like that is because it leaves open the possibility for me. It leaves open the possibility that even I can be saved. When I think of Simon, I can relate to him on a number of levels. I can relate to the desire to control the spirit instead of submit to it. I want to be able to wield the spirit like a wand and have it open doors and possibilities for me. I want it to grant the desires of my heart. I want to influence others. I want it to right wrongs and correct injustices. I want to wield the spirit in order to fix people so they don't bother me anymore. What I don't want is to have to submit to the spirit. And have the spirit reveal things about me that need to change. Places in my life that I need to repent. I don't want to be challenged to leave behind my desire for control. I don't want to have to examine my own heart and see my own sin. And and because of that, I need to admit that I'm Simon. And not only in that vein, but also in, like, Simon, we can look at it and we can judge it, right? Simon saying, hey, I'll pay you. You give me the ability to wield the Spirit. And we can look at that and say, like, I would never do anything like that. But how many times have I not prayed, God, if I do this, will you grant me this? God, I promise I'll always take care of this as long as I get this over here, right? That we enter into this bartering, this exchange for goods and services. I've done it. I am Simon. 
And if it's not possible for Simon to receive forgiveness, then what hope is there for me? If Simon's request for prayer doesn't leave open the possibility that he could be born again, then what hope is there for you? So thanks be to God that the, act, the God of Acts chapter 8 is a God who loves sinners. Thank God that in Acts chapter 8, we see in two different instances a God who loves the people who it is hard for you and me to love, whether it is another person or us ourselves. God calls each and every one of us into his kingdom, offers us new life, and baptizes us in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who seeks to save those who are lost. This is the God who loves sinners, who loves those who are unlovable, who seeks to dine with those who are viewed with disgust, who seeks to encourage those who are discouraged, who seeks to restore dignity to those who have been shamed. This is what happens when the Spirit of God descends on a people. And so like Peter and John, may we be surprised by the Spirit. Like Simon, may we pray and ask others to pray that the Spirit would work in us. And in both cases, may we be witnesses to the Spirit's work to save and redeem. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that while there are people for whom it is difficult for us to love, there is no one that you are not willing to extend your loving hand to. There's not one person for whom the invitation to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and adoption has not, there's not one person who hasn't, hasn't received that invitation. Your desire is that all would be saved. That all would come to know you. And I pray, Lord, that we would let that truth seep deep down into the deepest recesses of our souls. That it would become reflexive for us to believe that. Both about ourselves, that we could be people who are loved that deeply and that unconditionally by you. And that we would reflexively believe that about others. That they would be loved unconditionally by you. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are open to the moving of the Spirit, to see where it descends, and then to witness and praise you for the work of salvation that it brings. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.